Thanks, guys, and April for that. Let's close our eyes and bow your heads, our heads, and pray. God, that very simply is our prayer, that you would awake our souls. That we would be able to cast aside the gravitational pull of this life that sort of sucks us into complacency and comfort. And God, that you would awaken us, that you would quicken something inside of us to you, toward yourself, about you, all because of your son, Jesus. So come now, meet us, awaken our souls, please, Jesus. It's in your name we pray this. Everyone agreed together and said, amen. Great to be with every single one of you, especially if you're a guest. Today we're really delighted and honored, privileged to be in the presence of our great and mighty God together. How about a shout out for those Bobcat men last night on the football gridiron? As uh, I began to understand that we were going to win that game and that there would be a second home playoff uh, game, I made a very strict policy that there will be no more Saturday night playoff games. And I phoned in to the NCAA and told them as much, and well, look, we got a Friday night playoff game. So, because I called, that's not true. Just so you know. Good job, guys. We're really proud of you. And uh, we're going to pray that you just keep right on going, because praying about winning football is not cheating, (laughs) for the record. Show of hands if you'd be real honest and real transparent. How many of you have ever, at some point, any point in your life, felt, felt utterly and completely and entirely hopeless? Hopeless. You felt, yeah, tons of hands. You know, 75 or so percent of people have felt utterly, you know, those moments, right, where bad news hits you and you just got to put your head down on the desk or you got to put it down on the kitchen table or you got to put your head on the steering wheel in your car, not while you're driving, of course, but you just got to stop and, right, because it's just that bad. And if you've been there, which most of us in this room have, you understand the dictionary definition of what hopelessness is, having absolutely no expectation of good or success, no expectation of good or success, and that's just how it feels, right? There's nothing good coming. There's no success at all looming on the horizon. And then they sort of clarify the definition the dictionary does by adding this word, and we know what this is. If you raise your hand, you felt this despairing. The hole is just so deep. It's so dark. There's no light. There's no way out. There's no win. There's no good. It's just flat bad. And I contend that hope is one of the most very powerful gifts that God gives us ever. Hope is one of the most powerful gifts that God ever gives us because it can be a very real source of strength and courage. And the way I actually like to think about hope is that hope actually puts a whole bunch of steel into our spines when we're facing up against something that just could break us in two. Hope puts steel in our spine, doesn't it? You know the days when you're swimming in a sea of misery, hope lights the way forward. On those days when you feel absolutely overworked and flat exhausted. I know that lots of you came into this room today feeling utterly and completely exhausted. You don't know how, I mean, you barely got up out of bed this morning. You are just exhausted. Hope steps into your exhaustion, into your overwork, and supplies fresh energy. That's hope. When discouragement begins to creep in, and it happens to all of us, hope lifts or buoys our 
souls. On those days when we're tempted to quit and throw in the towel, just call it enough. Hope helps us lean into the load and keep persevering, keep pressing on. Okay, I can make it to and through another day. How about those moments when you feel lost and confused in those days when you have no idea where you're even going? You have no idea what the destination even is. Hope sets in on us and really keeps the panic at bay, doesn't it? Some of you have firsthand experience with illness and disease and you know what it is for sickness to rack your body. In those days, it's hope that inspires you to press in and press through and press beyond the pain. How about those moments when the worst is all you can see? You just got tunnel vision on the very worst that you can possibly imagine. Hope prompts us to remember that God's not surprised by this bad news. He is not taken aback by this. He's in control. He still is in control. He's still on his throne. And then every single one of us knows what it is to make a poor choice. We've all done it. And in those moments when we've made a very poor choice and that's caused us to have to reap a really harsh, maybe even long-term consequence, hope comes into, hope meets us in the midst of those consequences and gives energy to our restoration and our recuperation because, you see, consequences aren't supposed to be just about punishment. Consequences are supposed to be all about restoration and recuperation, restorative to the way things were and even better. And then in those days when economic factors that are way, way, way beyond our control leaves our future employment and so in question, hope like screams in our face, you still have a future. You might be working the most menial job you can possibly imagine, a job that you never thought you'd be enduring. And hope from God himself screams in our face, you are not defined by the work that you do. You are not defined by the work that you do. This is just a job, you still have a future. When waiting is all there is for us to do, hope gives you the stamina to keep trusting, keep trusting, keep trusting. And then you know what it is. If you raise your hand, you know what it is to feel abandoned, right? When everybody, your friends, your family, everybody who you thought would never leave you, when they actually leave you, standing out in the cold, hope nudges and hope prompts us to the level of our soul to remember that you're never alone. You're not ever alone. God's there and you will make it. He will see you through. A better day is coming. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And then when we stand at the threshold of having to say final goodbyes to people who we dearly, dearly love, it's hope in all that God has in the future that causes us to be able to navigate our grief, isn't it? Because if we didn't have that, we'd just collapse in a pile. I can't even think about going on after losing him or after losing her, losing them. Hope causes us to be able to navigate our grief. When life's hard, when dreams die, there is nothing quite like hope to see us through. The dictionary definition of hope reads like this, to cherish a desire with anticipation. To cherish a desire with anticipation, to expect with confidence, it's coming. It's coming. And there just isn't anything more important than this expecting confidence, is there? Without expecting confidence, prisoners of war, they just give up the fight, throw in the towel, and die. 
without expecting confidence. Students, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Your enthusiasm for learning and education, how long do I have to sit in classes, begins to wane and you just drop out. Call it good. Without expecting confidence, athletic teams like the six and five Minnesota Vikings, for example, fall into slumps and continue to lose and lose and lose. And well, what do you know? There goes the season, John Oakland. I'm sorry. I love you. Without expecting confidence, addicts, they set back into their old ways. Marriage partners, they drift apart and drift apart and drift apart, eventually divorcing maybe for the second or third time in their lives. Without expecting confidence, inventors and artists and entertainers and entrepreneurs, even pastors, lose their edge, run out of gas, and just throw in the towel. And so you see what I'm trying to tell you today is that hope isn't just this optional warm fuzzy that makes the journey through life go a little bit more smoothly. Hope isn't just a dollop of whipped cream on top of everything else in your life. Hope isn't either just a temporary fix to help surmount life's myriad obstacles. Hope is absolutely essential to our ability to survive to thrive in the midst of this life. And so it is with the power of hope in heart and in mind for these three weekends leading up to our Christmas Eve around here, we're gonna press into this hope factor. What it means to hope, and for some of us, what it means for us to actually make a run at hoping again, because some of us have just quit, we've given up, we've thought, ah, why bother? And you see, you and I, we have this really distinct privilege of living in the time when we do. We have the second half or so of the Bible, the New Testament, which sketches out really, really well what it means and how our lives are different because of the hope that we find resident in Jesus Christ. But not everyone throughout history has had that privilege, which is why I want us to step back into the Old Testament of the Bible to the Hebrew Scriptures and take a look together at the hope of Christmas as it was displayed profoundly for those who could never even imagine a New Testament of the sacred text of God. Because you see, before there was ever such a thing as Christmas, there was a God-given promise, wasn't there? And the promise that God gave was given right on the heels of Adam and Eve. If you go all the way back to the beginning of time, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, this promise was given on the heels of their sin in the garden. Lots of you know the story. Adam and Eve, they're the very first human beings. God sets them in this gorgeous, beautiful, spectacular garden, and he says, there's one rule. I just got one policy, and it's leave the tree alone, that tree. Just leave that tree alone. One single rule, and they couldn't do it. A gravitational pull was just too much, right? All you got to do is make a rule, and people just flock to break it. And as a result of fall. God placed in a curse on the creation, didn't he? But he did this amazing thing. In the midst of that curse, God made a promise which just speaks to the nature and character, the goodness of God. That's who he is. It's what he does. And here it is, Genesis 3, 15. God's talking to, any idea who God's talking to here? Satan. He's talking to Satan, Genesis 3, 15. And God says, I, that's God, will cause hostility between you, that's Satan, the serpent, and the woman, that's Eve, and between your offspring, Satan's offspring, and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. There's a lot going on there. And God's saying to Satan, look, 
You can have your way, Satan. You can make your mess. You can thrash around on the planet for a while, but I need you to know that there's a day coming when Eve's eventual offspring is gonna, I love this imagery, crush your little snake head. Show of hands, how many of you hate snakes? Man, I hate snakes. If, if I see a snake, I don't care. It's dying. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. <laughs> you can thrash around Satan, but there's a day coming when Eve's eventual offspring is going to crush your little snake head. And who's, who's the offspring that God's talking to Satan about there? It's Jesus. It's exactly right. It's Jesus. God makes this promise And because of who God is, he keeps his promises. And what do you know that promise came to pass when? The very first Christmas, when Eve's eventual offspring, Jesus, was born. But that wasn't all of the promise fulfilled. The rest of the promise from Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled in Jesus' death. So in Genesis 3.15, God promises Satan's going to strike the heel of Eve's offspring. And I'm telling you, Satan did that. He struck the heel of Eve's eventual offspring, Jesus. On the cross of Calvary. As Jesus suffered and as he bled and as he died, one of the cruelest deaths you can imagine, that was the striking of the heel. But it wasn't a fatal blow, was it? Now, I don't mean that Jesus didn't die. Jesus did literally die. And yet, God is so big and he is so powerful that Jesus' death, even his death, was only a bruise on his heel. And that was all Satan could muster against God Almighty and the Son of God Almighty. That was the best he could muster. Bruising the heel of Jesus and his death on the cross and his burial in the tomb. Of course, that wasn't the end of the story, was it? Because on the day, the first Easter day, when Jesus rose from the tomb, he won. He won. And with that singular act of the Son of God, Jesus, rising from the dead, he beat death and he beat hell and he beat the grave and he beat Satan, the very one that God spoke about, spoke that promise to so many centuries before. Jesus rising from the grave on that first Easter was indeed the head-crushing blow to Satan that God promised all the way back, Genesis chapter 3. Satan, you're toast. You are toast. But it begs a question. So if we see and understand that the snake's head, Satan's head has been crushed by Jesus' death, burial, and his rising. Why in the world, then, is there so much bad stuff going on? Why do we have to experience hopelessness and despair like we did when we raised our hands? Why? Why are the effects of the curse on humanity and on the creation still very, very much in view in people's lives? Why do sin and evil and wickedness plague folks, plague our world, plague me, plague all of us? And the answer is that even though the serpent's head has been crushed, God allows him, get this, allows Satan to flail about for a season of time. Which means that Satan to this very day is indeed flailing about. And the flailing that he does is his best effort to destroy everything in his path. And so you see part of the whole curse deal is that, catch this, God allows Satan a measure of authority. God is sovereign and supreme. He is in charge. He is on his throne. And he permits Satan a measure of authority. And we get confused on that point sometimes. It's real easy for us to look around this world and see we see that bad thing and that bad thing and that bad thing. And we're like, well, Satan is absolutely in charge of this whole mess. 
But that simply isn't the case. God is entirely in charge and in control of everything. And yet God grants Satan a measure of dominion, a measure of authority. Early in the book of Ephesians, which is Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul spends a great deal of time in the first couple of chapters explaining how very much in control God is. And then he moves, God's in control, and he moves to Satan early in chapter 2, verse 2. The devil, that's Satan, the snake, the serpent. The commander of the powers in the unseen world, that's what... God, through the Apostle Paul, calls Satan the commander of the powers in the unseen world. Which means that to this very day, he's continuing to be and will continue to be the enemy of your and my soul until the end of days. When on that day, God will put Satan away once and for all. And until then, we're living in a land and we're living in a space when our enemy, the devil, is indeed flailing about, which makes the words of 1 Peter 5, 8 incredibly germane to every single one of us. Peter writes, stay alert. When it comes to Satan, stay alert. Don't fall asleep. Don't get complacent. Don't get lazy in your Christian faith. Don't just show up for church and expect that to kind of be enough for you. Stay alert and watch out for your great enemy. It isn't This is little enemy, your great enemy, his name is the devil, and he prowls around like a roaring lion. You don't tangle up with roaring lions, do you? This isn't like this little mouse. He's a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, and that's you, and that's me, and he's after us. And that's why, right there, it's so easy for any of us to feel hopeless and to get to despairing in the midst of this life. All the difficulty, all the pain, all the suffering, all the sense of loss that goes on in all of our lives day by day by day. And then you pile on top of that the cacophony of very, very bad news that we gather from every corner of the planet. And in about three seconds, we're out of hope, aren't we? If we've misplaced our hope and we've put it in the stuff of this world, in about three seconds, we're out of hope. Because any hope we place in any human-constructed system is going to let us down. It's going to fail us. It just isn't going to work. Because you see, hope isn't sourced anywhere in this world. The source of all hope is not anywhere in this world. And we forget that. And we start to think that our hope is sourced in there being a certain president in Washington, D.C., Or we start to think that our hope is sourced in an economy that's going a certain way, a tax structure that works like this or like that. People start to think that our hope is sourced in a job that you've worked all these years to climb the ladder to attain. Or people start to think that hope will suddenly spring forth when you sell that house, the one that you've been trying to sell for so very long. When it finally sells, then there will be hope springeth anew. When you finish school or whatever it is that you fill in the blank that you're banking on that will provide It's going to let you down every single time. Every single time. Nothing in this earth is suitable for putting hope in. It's going to break. And it's going to let you down. And you see what was happening in Israel when Psalm chapter 80 was penned was something just like that. People had forgotten that God himself was the only real true, authentic source of lasting hope. They started to trust in a whole bunch of other things. And it got really, really gnarly. And we look around at our world and we go, man, things are really, really 
bad, but you should have seen the nation of Israel back when Psalm 80 was penned. Holy cow. People were literally being carried off into exile. You imagine that? Being carried off into exile. War wasn't just happening half a world away like it is for us these days. War was being waged in Israel's backyard and their front yard as well. Israel hadn't seen a vibrant economy in who knows how long. Get this, food in Israel around the penning of Psalm chapter 80, food was scarce. And not many of us know exactly what that feels like, do we? Because we go into grocery stores and there's a bunch of them in town in the valley and, whoa, we got Costco. They're never out. Food was scarce in Israel. And so you look at all that and you'd say the understatement of the millennium would have been to say times were tough. Oh man. All the flawed, broken, earthly things that people had looked to as their source of hope were crumbling around people's ears. But what we understand is that in the darkest moments of despair, hope shines most brightly, doesn't it? And Psalm chapter 80, which we're going to step through for these next three weekends, is an invitation for not just the nation of Israel, for people everywhere, no matter how bad it seems, no matter how hopeless and despairing they feel, to find authentic hope in the good, even great shepherd. Hope in the shepherd, capital S. Psalm 80, verses 1 through 6. Let's look at this together. Please listen, O shepherd of Israel, the psalmist cries. It's like begging. Please listen. You who lead Joseph's descendants like a flock, that's what God does with his people, leads us, leads them like a flock. Oh God, enthroned above the cherubim, that's a reference, by the way, to the Ark of the Covenant, because that's where the nation of Israel thought that God dwelled, that's kind of the way God sketched it out, I dwell above the cherubim on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant that they carried all around. Display your radiant glory to Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Those are just three of the 12 tribes of Israel. Display your radiant glory. Show us your mighty power, God. Come to rescue us. Things are that bad that the psalmist is crying out to God. Come rescue us. And then there's this next line that we're going to hear again and again and again throughout these next three weekends. Turn us again to yourself, O God. You might just set that into your memory. Turn us again to yourself, O God. Turn us again to yourself, O God. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. O Lord God of heaven's armies, how long will you be angry with our prayers? Israel was in such bad shape, God was even ticked off at what they were praying. Have you ever been there? Where you just sense God's angry with even your prayers. It's bad. And then watch this. You have fed us. This is a reference back to the shepherd imagery. You have fed us with what? Nice, sweet alfalfa? No. You, O shepherd, have fed us with what? Sorrow? How's that taste? And made us drink tears by the bucketful. Whoa. You, O shepherd, have fed us with sorrow and made us drink tears by the bucketful. You have made us the scorn of neighboring nations. Our enemies treat us as a joke. It was bad. The psalmist obviously is in a ditch that really we can't even imagine being in. And he's saying to his contemporaries and he's saying to people down through the millennia, look, Hope that won't disappoint and hope that won't leave you hanging is found not in any single thing on this planet. 
Authentic hope is found only and entirely in God, the one whom they call the good shepherd. It isn't in anyone, it's not in anything else. Nothing you build on this earth is gonna be able to pull it off. No hope there. And to understand what's going on in Psalm chapter 80, you'd understand that the psalmist is crying out to God who is supposedly, right, the good shepherd who's leading Israel to a pasture where all there is to eat is sorrow and all there is to drink was tears. And if you were a sheep following that shepherd, you would think you got gypped out of something. This is not a good shepherd. Eat up. Here's your fill of sorrow. And when you're ready for a drink, just cry yourself some tears into a bucket and then wash big clumps of sorrow down with the tears that you just cried out of your tear ducts. That's the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 80. Why in the world would the supposedly good shepherd leave his beloved sheep, his covenant people, his chosen nation, the people of Israel, to a pasture where all there is to eat was sorrow, all there is to drink is tears out of buckets that they filled themselves? It's a real easy answer, and it's a real difficult answer at the same time. And it goes like this. You see, God loves his people, the nation of Israel and all the way to us, Today, he loves his people, and he also knows at the same time exactly what it is that we need at any given time. He loves us, and he knows what we need at any given time, and that's like a gulp kind of moment, right? And we hear that, and we want to sort of viscerally react to it and go, that ain't no good shepherd. I don't want to follow that shepherd. And it'd be natural that we would want to respond that way because no one wants to eat sorrow and no one wants to drink tears, but that's everything that Israel needed. And for some of us, it might be everything we need all the way to this very day, this one. And we go, why? Well, because you see, real simply, Israel was living their lives as far from God as you could possibly imagine. That was the nation of Israel around the penning of Psalm 80. And what happens is that anytime people start living their lives a long way from God, they get to putting hope in things that don't bring hope. They get to putting hope in things that will only disappoint. And God knows. He knew then and he knows now exactly what it is that we need, just like he knew exactly what it is that they needed to bring us, to bring them back to him. And understand we got to be really, really careful with this because it gets really, really dicey, really, really fast Because anytime anybody is ever in the throes of a very difficult season, we have to acknowledge that God did not cause, get that, God did not cause that difficulty. Depending of Psalm chapter 80, God did not cause those wars, he did not cause that economic collapse, he did not cause that food shortage, he did not cause his people to be carried off into exile. He did not cause that. He did not cause Israel to turn their backs and their hearts against him. And at the same time he didn't cause it, he permitted, permitted that painful, difficult stuff to happen. Just like to this very day, he permits painful, difficult things to come into our lives, into people's lives. He allows it. And you want to swallow a hard moment, understand this. He allows it because he's working a good thing out in our lives, in their lives. 
He's working a good thing out. It doesn't feel like it, though, does it? And you, right now, I expect in a room like this, we got every pain, every need, every dark thing imaginable represented in a room like this. And you might be in as broken a place as you've ever been. And you might be in a place where you're just flat at the end of yourself and life is so hard and so difficult and you've maybe been just like Israel was for so long. You've been gnawing on sorrow. That's what you're eating, sorrow, and you're washing it down with your tears. Well, you hear God saying to you today, this is for your end benefit. This is for your end good. I'm working something out that you frankly can't even imagine from what you can see But God says, if you could see what I can see, and if you could see what I'm working out, you would, it's for your end. Good, trust me. Put your hope in me. Because at the end of the day, the only 100% trustworthy source of hope you'll find anywhere, anytime, is God. It's him. And it's him alone. And I'm going to set this into three points of application for you. But to do that, I'm going to ask you to get quiet and still before before God. Just set your stuff aside, if you would. Close your eyes and bow your heads, and I'll set this up for you. And we'll finish with this. First thing I'm going to ask you to consider... Is your hope for salvation, eternal salvation, is your hope for new life right here and right now, is your hope in the life that is to come, is it rightly placed in Jesus Christ? Today, God's offer of love and salvation and redemption, God's offer of eternal forever hope that lets any of us be able to live in harmony with him, It stands wide, wide open to every single person on planet Earth today. And so maybe after an honest appraisal of your heart and your life, you know that you're not living in harmony with God. You know, frankly, that you're living in opposition to God. Or maybe it's not even that far. Maybe for you, it's just your hope for the life that is to come. Your hope for eternal life is based on your work, what you're striving after, what you're attempting to do to earn it. God wants to help you get it right once and for all. And he says, you can put your saving hope in me today. You can put your saving hope in him, the sovereign and supreme God of the universe, and you can do it today. And you can do that by praying along with me a prayer that goes like this. I invite you that's the desire of your heart to step into the eternal saving hope of Jesus Christ to pray with me like this Jesus forgive me please I'm a sinner and I've been working real hard to try to save myself but I'm realizing God that I can't do it nothing I do get me to you so God with all the faith I can muster in this moment I gratefully receive your gift of salvation into my heart I trust you Savior and Lord of my life and I thank you with all of me for coming to earth for living, for dying for rising for showing me what it is to live 
the life that you designed for me. Here I am, Jesus. And if you're a person today who's stepping into faith in Jesus Christ for the first time, that's the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight than that one right there. And it's such a big deal that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision. And so I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Nobody's looking around this room except you, me, and God. If you prayed with me just then, would you be real bold and just slip your hand up real high and lock eyes with me and just let me say yes with you? You can do that right now. Yes, right over here to my left. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Just keep your hands up and make sure I catch your eye if you would. And in the back, yeah, to my right. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Way to go. Yeah, and over there to my right. Absolutely. Yes. And you too. Absolutely. Way to go. Yes. There. Yes. Yes, sir. Way to go. And in the back. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I stand with you. I say yes with you. Life changes today for you. Everything shifts. And there in the back, absolutely, yeah, I see you. Way to go, yes. Yes. I stand with you. Way to go, all of you. Now let me move on to this second thing. Second point of application. There's that line that repeats several times throughout Psalm 80 if you read it and I referenced it and we're going to keep referencing it for the next three weeks. It goes like this. Turn us again to yourself, O God. Be a good one to memorize. Turn us again to yourself, O God. Turn us again to yourself, O God. And maybe you're in Christ and maybe you've called yourself a Christian for a lot of years now. Maybe for you, when you take a look across the spiritual landscape of your life, you see that there's this stuff, there's this sin, there's this clutter that really is just driving you further and further and further from God. Or maybe for you it's not even that, it's just that you have this propensity, this profound propensity to misplace your hope again and again and again. And everywhere you put it, stuff's just letting you down and letting you down and letting you down. God's inviting you again today to confess your stuff to air it out, to repent, turn and run from it. Turn and run from it. Repent of it all. God, I'm done with it all. I'm finished with it all. I'm driving the stake in the ground today. I'm all done. I'm not hoping in anything but you from here on out. And I just invite you to transact that business with God. I just put that verse in your own words. God, would you turn me again to you? God, would you turn me again to you? God, would you turn me again to you? And would you keep doing it? And then the last one, we'll finish with this one. Third thing. Would you ask God today to so overwhelm your life such that everything you say and everything you do gives the hope that you have in Christ away to everyone else in your world. Because you see, the hope that Jesus died on the cross to give you, it isn't just about you. It's about everyone in your family. It's about everyone in your class. It's about everyone in your office. It's about everyone in your book club. It's about everyone in your whole life. It's for everyone. It isn't just for you. 
And so would you just right now in the quiet and still of this moment ask God to give you words and give you opportunity and give you receptivity to the things that you're going to say today and tomorrow and the next day to the people in your life about the overflowing hope that God's given you. Oh God, give me words. Oh God, give me opportunity. Oh God, give me receptivity. And then go do it. Give his hope away and give it away and give it away and give it away. Not just through the life you live, through the words you say. You're going to display it and you're going to declare it both. Display the hope of Jesus Christ. Declare the hope of Jesus Christ. And just keep on giving it away. And I just want you to imagine for a moment how things are going to change in people's lives who are in your world when they're hoping in the only 100% reliable source of hope in the world, Jesus Christ, like you do. Just imagine what's going to happen as one by one by one by one people are placing their forever eternal hope in Jesus and then they're going and giving it away. Imagine what's going to happen. Oh God, we ask that you would do that very thing. That you would set our hearts afire for you. And that we would be overflowing with your hope and that we wouldn't just hold it in us. That we would go talk about it and that we would go live it. That we would go with a serving towel over our arm. And that we would be telling everybody in our lives about you. You're that good. You're that great. You're that trustworthy, God. We can trust in you. We can put all our hope in you, and we do it, Jesus. Our hope is in you alone.